0: This evening we are recording a study in the second half of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, the chapters four, five, and six, which emphasise particularly the practical outworking of this truth. Before we do so, it is our custom to read a portion of Scripture together, and those of you who are listening to this recording may like to share this with us. If so, will you switch off for a little while? while we read together Philippians chapter 2. One of the reasons why we have read Philippians chapter 2 is that it emphasizes the mind that was in Christ Jesus. Because we do not walk with our feet. That's only the mechanical echo. We walk with our mind. If you don't believe me, you cross the road without thinking. In fact, you won't perhaps reach the other side who have any thoughts about it at all. The mind in physical life and the mind in spiritual life is far more important than the shape of the feet or the type of boots you wear. You walk because your mind is in one direction or another. And you'll discover when we start considering Ephesians chapter 4 that when he speaks about the walk, the first thing he touches upon is your mind. But let us now turn, shall we, to Ephesians chapter 4, to see this question of (laughs) balance that is so definitely indicated in the construction and teaching of this epistle. You know, it's very possible to become very vivid in our references to heavenly places, principalities and powers and dispensations and decrees and I feel that that's all that's necessary. But it isn't, friends. It is. You know as well as I do. That it's so easy to become just like a tape recording with regard to chapter and verse. And the one that you're talking to, you're seeking to leave, may be looking up and down and wondering how far this is true. And the reason is not because he you doubts your ability to interpret a passage, or understand its grammar, that he you knows something about your manner of life, and so let may be stopping it. Yet. I'm not speaking about anybody here, except I'm speaking about myself, because it's very obvious that in every one of us there is that possibility of becoming a doctrinaire, but that is not sufficient. So I realise that this mighty epistle, which means so much to us, is so constructive, that there's just as much space given to the walk that corresponds with the doctrine as making known the tremendous revelation of this mystery. You would imagine that you want book after book to tell us about the revelation of this new calling and then just a few verses to suggest that we walk in harmony with it, and it isn't it? Just a number of chapters, 1, 2 and 3, balance for 4, 5 and 6. In fact, if we are really strict, there are more chapters dealing with practice because the doctrine ends halfway through chapter 3 and the great prayer which, with which chapter 3 ends comes in the centre of the lot. But here we have a focal point in this chapter 4 and we have the exhortation which reads like this. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you. Do you notice the change of title? Chapter 3 verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. For so this cause, I fall the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Now, Jesus Christ is the Lord. But sometimes he's called Jesus Christ. And sometimes he's called Lord. And there's a reason for it. In every case, you may not be able to spot it. Because his full title is the Lord Jesus Christ, and it may be given him just like that. But when you observe that in the doctrinal section, Paul says he's the prisoner of Jesus Christ. And the very next time he mentions it, in the practical section, he says, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. Well, that makes you say to yourself, yes, this is mine. You remember our Savior said, and it's recorded in John, you call me Master and Lord, and you do well. But he says in following, don't forget that if I'm your Lord, I should expect you to do what I say. It's not enough to say, Lord, Lord. And then ignore his teaching. So there's a reason why we have the emphasis here upon the Lord. The prisoner of the Lord. Then I think it's worthwhile noticing that this apostle, this man, the only man recorded in the New Testament who received this wonderful revelation, if ever a man could have put himself on a pedestal, it was the apostle Paul. And you know he was conscious of it. He said, Lest I should be exalted above measure because of the revelations given to me. It was sufficient that I should have a form in the flesh a messenger of Satan says above me. That's a confession, isn't it? How easy it would have been for the apostle Paul to have been so fucked up that he would have become intolerable. Now there is his next. He doesn't say I, the prisoner of the Lord, the one who alone has received this revelation, I tell you what to do, he said, I beseech you. He's living in an atmosphere of grace, and so he says, I beseech you. I wonder how many times we've been beseeching one another, or whether we've been telling one another where we get off. Well, of course, you see, we're not quite so high an height as Apostle Paul, and therefore we can't stoop so low. I'll be the in that. You know the one who stooped lower than anyone else? Is this wide room? was the mighty son of God, Philippians too. He stooped lower than Paul could stoop. When Paul stooped, he stooped to the death of execution by a sword, for he was a Roman citizen. And his Savior stooped to the execution of a criminal slave, crucifixion. In that mighty gospel, according to John, where he set forth as the word of the creator, and where at last, underneath his promise, bowed in his presence and worshipped him, He's in the midst of that John where he took a towel and girded himself and washed it in front his feet. It does make us sad to see the it takes from the part of some people to prove how great they are. If they only knew it, they are proving how small they are. Because I've come to see this in the course of life, that when a person is really great, he doesn't know himself, thank God, and there's no need to impress other people. But if it is not understood and not seen by them, you can depend upon it, it's not there at all. So I beseech you. Now, what does he beseech them to do? That you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. That word vocation is simply another way of saying calling. It's the same word that we have in chapter 1, verse, um. Eighteen, the eyes of an understanding being enlightened, as you may know what is the hope of his calling. So we'll keep the word calling, leave the word vocation alone. That you walk worthy of the calling, wherewith ye are called. Of course, the authorised translators, they knew that you could sometimes vary words and make it more pleasant. It sounds a little bit awkward to say the calling, wherewith ye are called. It sounds better to say the vocation. Where we hear called, But on the other hand, we lose. It's a calling that's the result of being called. We never put ourselves in. We never say we'll go into this calling. Almost oh, God called us. So we now walk worthy of a calling that we receive. First of all, let's look at this word, worthy. You will notice I have on the, uh, screen here just a pair of dances. I'm afraid I'll put some huge weight in those scales, uh, but they're only just drawn, so it doesn't matter, it The scales represent the meaning behind the word worthy. Actually, the word worthy is the word axios, as you can see in the middle. Don't say "actios," for that is an adjective. Axios is an adverb. Worthy means. Good enough. This is how you are supposed to walk. Worthy. Now, the word axios, and many of its derivatives have the thought of a, a movement, and this particular word indicates the beam of a balance. If you are a student of philosophy, you may have come across the word axiology. And if you don't know what axiology is, well, roughly speaking, it is the philosophy of values. Values. What's a theme worth? In this life, and so this is asking you to consider a, wor- a walk that's Worth it, worthy, it, in some measure corresponding or balancing. If you will turn to Romans the eighth chapter, you'll see the way in which the authorized translators have extended this word "worthy" to give it a very idea of comparison. And doubt. Romans the eighth chapter, verse eighteen. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which were revealed in us. And you notice the words, to be compared, are in Italian. But they're in the word. Not you couldn't say that the, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy with the glory, because it doesn't make sense in English. It means worthy to be put into the scale and down them. Now, am I letting my imagination run away, or does the apostle ever use the idea of a weight and a scale in connection with suffering and glory? Well, you know he does, but let's be sure, shall we? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. For which cause we face not? But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Now, notice. For our life affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh us for us a far more exceeding and eternal wealth of glory. In comparison with the glory that's coming, the Apostle said, our life affliction. Now he was talking to somebody else and saying, you're life affliction, or which is easy for us to look at a person and say, oh, you are making a past if you only could see other people, if you only knew how other people are suffering, if you only compared it with the glory that's telling you, then he says, we? Now this man has given you a list of sufferings, which were squeezed out of him, and he said, I made him a fool in his face. But when you read the list of things that that man with, you wonder that he him. Now that man, with all that list of sufferings behind him, he could say, light a picture. When I put it into the scale, and try to Make it balance the glory that awaits God's people. Well, that's for you and for that should be our characteristic too. Now, this word worthy occurs in Ephesians 4, Philippians 1, and Colossians 1. And although we've had it before, we must include it here for the sake of those who are listening to this recording who may not be aware of it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 26. Here the word worthy is hidden under the word become. 127. Only let your conversation, that is to say your manner of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So he, he, he's moving along the same direction. <coughs> Ephesians says, let your work, walk be worthy of the calling. Philippians says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What a wonderful thought this is. It? When you think of that gospel of Christ, what it involved, the leaving of of the glory, the coming into this world as man, the long years of patient waiting, then those crowded years of witness, and endurance, and suffering, and misunderstanding, and at last the apprehension, the false trial, the crucifixion, the death. All that, in order that there may be a gospel, a good news of salvation for sinners, and he says to you in let your manner of life balance that in the scales before God. It seems almost impossible, doesn't it? The only thing is that we have to remember that even in Old Testament times, God challenged one of his servants, he says, is there anything too hard for me? And we have to say, no Lord. It's only because we are frail and forth. It is your earth and best. Yes, Lord, an earthen vessel that earth is easily broken. It is not when I hold it. Not when I hold it. It is that I will never allow anyone to say that they to me. And so we must have courage that we're not to direct our thoughts to ourselves as to how we are going to manage it, but we put our full complete trust again. Now what about Colossians 1 and this word worthy? Let's get that as well. Verse 9, for this cause we also since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. No reference to your feet, but a big reference to wisdom and spiritual understanding and a knowledge of his will, that you might walk worthy of the Lord. This is Satan's a saved further. First of all, we are exhorted to walk worthy of our calling. Then we are to walk worthy of the gospel and then to walk worthy of the Lord. So the further we go, the more wonderful it becomes, that it's possible in the estimate of God that those who were like the Athenians, who once were aliens and strangers and hopeless and christless and godless, could be exalted to such a high step. So it's not merely that we are aspiring for something which is beyond possibility, it's something which is in front of us, even though every one of us will confess to the end of our days that we're never quite satisfied with regard to the dance of this special teaching. But there is a proverb, and I think you know it, and I've said it before, that the man who aims at the moon, he got a little bit higher than the man who aims at the gooseberry bush. So, aim high, means, even though you may be very conscious, you may never quite hit a bullseye. That's what God wants you to do. Set your affection on things above. And as you do so, it'll be far more easy, because you're worthier that morning than if you bow your head in fortunately and say, I cannot do this, I cannot do that, I cannot do the other. But he might say to you like he said to Moses, "Who is made of hands Moses was dittering and saying, I cannot speak. He said, he always is made of And if we ditter, he says, am I asking you to do it in your strength or in mine? We're well, after all betraying Christ if we stand still and so we cannot do it, but he's never asked you to do it in your own strength. He's asked you to do it in his strength. So we are, after all, exhibits of the power that lies behind salvation. Chapter 1, the power that lays Christ from the dead. Chapter 3, the power that answers our prayer. Chapter 6, the power that use us with all the necessity for the warfare that may be inevitable. That power is at our disposal all the time. It might be interesting for us just to turn to the Old Testament to get two references to this word wording to see how it is there translated. I'm of course using the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, but chapter 23, verse 9. Genesis, sorry. 23, verse 9. This is a bargain being carried out in true Oriental style, Abraham, which is a field. But a burial place. It's a remarkable thing that this man, by faith, left early the Chaldeans to go into a land that God would give him. And the only portion he ever actually possessed is the piece he bought and paid for as a burial ground. But we are told that he didn't receive the promise at that time. But he endured our seeing him was invisible like Moses did, and he looks for the city which hath foundation, whose builder and maker is God, over and above this land that was promised to him and his descendants. But well, that's a little bit farther away. But we mustn't be taken in by the fact that these people say, oh, well, we mustn't argue about you, you just take whatever you wish. But he says, uh, verse 9, that he may give me the cave of Baptina, which he hath which is in the end of his field, for as much money as it is worth. Okay, and The Old Testament says, full of money, that is to say, bound And if you look a little bit further down, you'll see that it says, he weighed out the money. Verse 16. And Abraham harkened under Ephron, and Abraham weighed to Ephron the silver. He weighed it. And to this very day, it's not a very... Uh, polite expression to tell somebody your way out. But you know what it means, don't you? Money was weighed, And when you have the word um, in the Hebrew language a, a shekel, the word shekel is a part of the word to weigh. And I'll tell you one man who, who learned what the word shekel is. In the Chaldean language it is pronounced tikal. A T instead of an S. And he saw it on a wall. Tikal, tikal mean who you pass passing You are weighed in the balance and found wanting. God said to that man you're waiting to balance He, he say to you, you'll be waiting a balance Is it possible that you and I may be found watching? The epistle of the Hebrews said that some of God's people who are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ might draw back to waste. That's only another way of saying found say, wanting. So you see, when we're dealing with war. We're dealing with something which may or may not be up to when we are dealing with the gift of God and his great salvation, that's complete and we thank God for it. So we're not touching our assurance. We're only touching the things which accompany salvation, which vary in each one of us. The other reference which I have with regard to the meaning of this word worthy is Job 11.6. I thought it might be interesting for you to just get a piece in the Old Testament usage. Job 11.6. And that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, and they are double to that which is. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserve it. Now that word deserve it, which is in italics, is expressed in the secondary version by the word actios worthy. Less than your iniquity deserves. So there's a the idea of balance, something equivalent. Now, the next thing for us to observe in this epistle to the Ephesians, coming back again, is that the word walk occurs seven times. You will find it occurs twice in the doctrinal section, and then the remaining occurrences naturally occur in the practical. Let's go to the doctrinal first, chapter 2. How does it come up our character, before we were saved people, it sums it up by referring to your walk. Chapter 2, verse 2. Where in ye time past ye walked. That's all he has to say. You walked. Now how did you walk? What guided you? What was in front of you? What was the attending motive? Here did Where in any time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's all it says about our walk, but it says enough, doesn't it, to condemn us all. It's an astounding thing that I actually met somebody when I was away in the United States. Who because he had been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world had no need of a Redeemer. And I've met them in this country too who got to the same perilous position. But he says to these very people to whom he's addressing this epistle to the Ephesians, that in time past you were by nature children of wrath, even of darkness. God chose us that we should be holy and without blemish. But we know well enough that we are not even now holy and without flesh, and we certainly were not before we looked upon him and accepted him as our remote and saviour. Eh? So there's our walk. Now the other reference to walk is in chapter two. Verse eight for by grace, are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves? It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in there. Now that's what it says in the doctrine. It says you have a bad walk, once, you've got a good walk now. But it doesn't tell you what the good walk is, because it's not the promise of doctrine, it's the promise of practice to so expand and tell you what sort of walk it is. Well now we'll come back then to chapter 4, and we see the first emphasis upon walk, is the walk that's worthy of your calling. But after that, it says in verse 17, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not, as other Gentiles in the vanity of the Amai. So we've got it positively, and we've got it negatively. And may I slip in a word to any one of you that may be speaking to others, or writing to others? It's not sufficient always, just to say a thing positively. It's sometimes wise to say yeah, it negatively as well. I don't know whether you've ever given a person a direction to go somewhere. And you discover that you've told them what to do, but you haven't told them what not to do. And sure as in, they don't do the thing that you forgot to mention. They turn around that little corner that you never enter your mind. And they never got to do. So, when you're directing somebody, say, cross over and take the right hand the first turning on the right hand side, but whatever you do, don't go out and let it go back on. Because that's not the one I need. That's the idea. So scripture says, it tells you how to walk, and it also tells you how not to walk. So you can get it one way or another. Some of the we it one way or another. Now, will you notice, in verse 2, the word is loaded. Now, if you go back to the 20th chapter, of the Acts of the Apostles, you'll find that word, "lowliness" translated a little differently. Acts 20, verse 19. The Apostle is speaking about himself. And one of the severest tests for anybody is to be so frank, and so childlike, that he can actually tell people he's a very humble person, without making himself either ridiculous or offensive. For you and for me to start telling people what humble people we are would have an immediate feeling about things that something wrong. But this man, he most innocently and plainly said he served the Lord with all humility of mind. That's a great man for you. He didn't know what you did, that he was saying anything out of the He served the Lord with all humility of mind. Now that's the word nobility. So would you put the word humility of mind into verse 2 of Ephesians 4? Look, you walk worthy of the vocation, worthy to your called with all humility of mind. Now look at the negative. Verse 17. This I say therefore and testify the Lord that ye henceforth walk not of the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Don't you see we've missed a bit? The sheer fact that the translators have put lowly has robbed you of just the balance. Positively, you walk in humility of mind. Negatively, not in the vanity of your life, there's the two. Your mind influencing your walk, one way or the other. I remember in Fleet Street, there used to be a, a shop, a little shop, and I should imagine the people, because of their trade had no sense of humor, had no honey bone up their sleeves. So they got a big notice on this door. It says, money left, mind was set. Well, if a step was there, you might hurt yourself. But you see, your mind, mind was step. You could take that as a text too. Mind the step. Each step should have some relation to the mind. And whatever your mind is, your step, your walk, your conversation, your manner of life will be an index. Well, now let's look at the way in which this word walk occurs as we come on to this, this practical section, chapter 5. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love. This is expanded tremendously, as you'll see in verse 2, though we're going to give that attention later. Again we get further down. Verse 8, These were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then yet further, in verse 15, See that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. So you see, there's a good deal of teaching in this epistle to stress this character of walk. A walk that is worthy of this wonderful calling. Should we now look at chapter 4 a little bit more intimately? You notice in verses 1 and 2, as we've already reviewed, the walk is positive, and stresses the humility of mind. And in verses 17 to 19, the walk is negative, and stresses the opposite of the vanity of the mind, the understanding darkened, the alienation of the life of God, the ignorance, the blindness, the past feeding, the lasciviousness, the greediness that you have not so learned Christ. Now in between verses 2 and 17, naturally come verses 3 and 16, now, what I about? Well, it stresses the unity of the Spirit and impinges upon the one body. And it ends up in verse 16, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So you would might say this, that the first expression of this worthy walk is found in the relationship of the body of Christ. The body and its members, the body in relation to the head. And then the next expression, which follows verse 19, is the new man. Verse 21. If so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. wherefore, putting away thine, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So you see, the one body, and its wonderful membership, is a dominating feature in this opening section of the walk that's worth At first sight, you wouldn't think that the connection was very real. But the more you think of it, if we are a company of God's people, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, and if we are so associated with him that we can be likened to the body of which is the head, well surely that has implications with regard to that character. And then, if that body is made up of many members, and all those members are in relationship one with another and functioning of the members should, that also would influence our walk and our faith. So, in a measure, all we've got to do is to remember that we are the body of Christ, and that we are as one of another and our walk. while well, we should not know ourselves. We, 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 should, uh, 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 our friends don't recognize us. I say, I you realize? I couldn't, I couldn't think that it was me. Why? What's changed? It. You see, we are so yet to take these words, the body of Christ never one of and never realise the implication. And yet it's beginning to be stretched by the very way in which this subject is introduced. The next thing is this. We mustn't alter, alter the order in which these words occur. We walk worthy of the calling. We have this peculiar characteristic of mind, and then we have. The work that is in front of us, involved in the word endeavor. Let's look at that, shall we? First of all, we walk worthy of the calling. There is one other reference to this calling that we ought to add, so that we get all the value we can out of words. Two Timothy one nine. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That's the calling. That's the calling there expressed, which is here given as the first demand upon us that we should walk worthy of the calling where we have been or are called. Then this question of the mind, with all humility of mind, we get in Philippians 2, do you remember the passage we read together? If one do us any more, to read it again. Philippians 2, verse 2 and 3, Fulfilling my joy, that you be like-minded, like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, you see it coming out again? In loneliness of mind, let each consider the affairs of others of more consequence than our own. That is a little different rendering from the way you have it here, but that's what it means. But it immediately goes on to say that's what Christ did. He thought of the things that belong to him as more consequence than holding his position in glory. There is a false humility, of course, and there always will be. As sure as God emphasizes one thing, the easier one will try to palm off up upon you a substitute. Let's read it, and it's written in Colossians for our learning. Colossians chapter two verse eighteen let no man guide you of your reward in a voluntary humility. Now, whatever that means, we may not be perfectly sure. But it's something to be avoided anyhow. Some sort of humility that you put on in a wrong sense. The Ephesians says, put on the new man. But we use the word put on in another sense, don't we? We say, oh, he's putting it on. God forbid that we should put anything on like that. That's the false parade. That's the evil thing. So he says, a voluntary humility. And the worshipping of angels. There is a possibility, it doesn't mean that they worshipped angels, but they adopted the worshipping attitude of angels. Why? All oh, that are so humble. These people, if ever there were a the people who could take the words of Corinthians to themselves in their fullness, we all in unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. Unveiled face! And the cherubim and the seraphim veil their faces in the presence of God. You and I who have fallen deeper than those children they never could get, we have been redeemed, and we can look with unveiled face. Oh no, says these Colossians. Oh no, we are so humble. We have got the attitude of angels, and we'll bow, and we'll scrape, and we'll form, and we'll have this wonderful humility accredited to us, or which is an abominable thing there. Included into those things which he hath not seen. Now look, they have a humility. The very verse, before it ends, says they're puffed up by his fleshly mind. His fleshly mind. What a difference between the true humility of mind and this fleshly mind that parades. And why did they get into this fix? Look, next verse tells you why. Not holding the head. There's a body coming in again. There's your relationship of the body and the head and the members too. From which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increasing with the increase of God. And then he goes on to say about those who say touch not taste not hand not and all that. He says in verse 23 which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will, worship and humility. That is that only it the you see? And neglecting of the body not in any honour to the satisfied of the flesh. That's all you do. Now that's a specious thing. That's a thing to be avoided. But in chapter 3 of Colossians while we have this open We have this emphasis upon the uh, character of these people. Verses 12 and 13. Chapter 3. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. So you see, that's stressed in Colossians. It's stressed here in Ephesians. We come back again. This word humility of mind takes us back, see it's a compound word. It's made up of tapinosis, which means humility, and prosceni, which means mind. Now tapinosis, the word that means humility, occurs in that passage we know so well, Matthew eleven twenty nine. that we don't know it so well, but what we ought to know it again, and read it for ourselves. Matthew 11, 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest unto your souls. Those words were spoken to his disciples and they were said by Christ at the time when he had been rejected. Look at verse 20. Then began he to upraise the cities where the most of his mighty works were done because they so repented not. Verse 25. At that time when he was rejected Jesus answered and said, "I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed it unto me. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight." Verse 38. Come unto thee, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Did he grumble? Did he murmur? Did he complain, because his mighty work had been rejected? He said, no, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. But look at verse 27. All things are delivered unto thee of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son, but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So there's a passage which tells you that it's more it's more easy for us to understand the revelation of the Father than it is to understand the Son. Let's read it again. No man knows the Son, but the Father, that's where it stops. Doesn't go. anything. Neither no, know if any man the Father save the Son and him to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So you'll find your problems are not around the fact that God is Father, that your problems are around the fact that the Son also is called God. It's the Son that's the focus. And the center both of our faith, our love, and of controversy. Now we come back to the fourth chapter again. With all loneliness and meekness. That's a characteristic of the believer it should be. It was a characteristic of Christ. It was a characteristic of Moses. That's it, Moses. He was a mighty man. Mighty in word and deed. An outstanding man when you come to realise his upbringing in the court of Pharaoh, and then his leadership of the children of Israel, and the way that God singled that man out and spoke to Moses, and the man speak to his friend, and he himself said, A prophet to the Lord your God, why up unto you, I have to be, he here. And yet that man wrote himself, Now the man Moses was more big than any man on the face of the earth. And he must have been really a neat nice man who have put that down. Otherwise, it would have been monstrous. Neatness. Then you get Psalm 45. The Lord is riding forth in his chariot; His arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. And he rides forth in Neatness. That's a strange idea of a hero and a warrior, isn't it? Riding forth in Neatness. You imagine know, he, Hitler's and Mussolini's saying, we want to go forth in Meekness to this battle. Well, it's ancient opposite, isn't it? So it is. This battle is moved by other motives besides our uh, lust for power or whatever prompts the wars in this world. Neatness. And then we have that belief or negative upon the neater, neatness, which is so valuable to all of us that have to deal with God's people. Let's turn back to Gal- Galatians, chapter 6. Uh, chapter 5, first of all, verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, yet comes one of them, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. There is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. Now look at it's use in chapter 6. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such as one in the Spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And that is possibly the kindest way in which neatness will be made. A person who is conscious that he has the possibility of falling like his fallen brother. He who knows what temptation can be, but instead of that man being the higher mighty, that man will be meek and lowly in heart and will be one of the footsteps of his Savior. Then we have the word long-suffering. That is the characteristic of Christian love as you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's see for ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This great right hymn concerning charity, or as the word which should be now translated, love. Because charity has changed its meaning since those three or four hundred years ago. Charity suffereth long, and it's kind. The very first statement of Christian love is this characteristic. It suffers long. But it doesn't really suffer long. It's kind. I met some people who suffer long, but they are all out to make like you suffer long. They won't let you forget that they're suffering. They chase you all around saying that they're suffering. That's not love. Love suffers long. That's a characteristic. So we have it here to walk worthy of our calling with all humility of mind, with meekness, with long suffering forbearing one another in love. But a human touches me. You wouldn't be in a perfect society there would be any need to prepare one another at all. We should wish you all so perfect that there be no friction whatever, well, no company has yet ever existed in this world where well, that is true. It will exist one day, thing, we? and we're drawing near to it, but we haven't quite got there. And in Colossians 3, verse 13, which I didn't read, but I'm going to read now. Forbearing one another, here it is, he, and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye, and above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. So you may have a quarrel against love. He supposes it's possible. This is looking at a human society, even though they're redeemed by the blood of Christ and actuated by the Spirit of God. It's always the possibility that the old man and his deeds will sometimes approve that out of the surface. What he says, all right, what she said, see to it that all these things are kept in the right place. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, that ye walk worthy of the calling wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness, and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, and when he gets to that, here for the first time, he says, endeavoring to do something. Endeavoring to keep The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There are one or two other passages that might illustrate this word long-suffering while we're about it. you be long-suffering, will you, while we turn to them. Colossians 1, verse 10 and 11. See, we read just now Colossians 1, 9 and 10. Now we read 10 and 11. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord under all pleasing. So we're on the same line. Being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience. That seems a nice anti guy. That sounds like you. Being strengthened with all might, what more? To be patient. But don't you say, oh, nobody needs to be strengthened with all might to be patient. That's one of the things we need so much. You have need of patience, says the scripture. You have need of patience. That means I do, and possibly you do. So it says here according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering. Then again the little word with joyfulness. That's a strange mixture of a person, isn't it? Do you know anybody who is not suffering with joyfulness? Well if you do, that person's getting very near to the glory. He may not know his own face is shining, but it's beginning to Long suffering with joyfulness. Christian love suffers long and is kind. And then we have in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 10. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 10. He's contrasting himself with other false teachers. And he says, but thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life. Or this is what this apostle could put together. His doctrine and his manner of life. He didn't write Ephesians doctrine 1, 2 and 3 and manner of life 4, 5 and 6 and forget to do it himself. He did So we can follow this man however much we have to follow him far off. Now I fully known him by doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long suffering, patience, for charity, patience. He puts long-suffering in there, you see. So here's, a, here's that characteristic of the Apostles teaching over and over again. He never enjoins upon you and me to do something about which he himself was lacking. He could even write in Corinthians, those things that you have heard and learned and seen in me do. I've never heard a preacher say nothing about a book and say that, of you? I don't think you've ever heard it said in this building, but this man could. and need to say to them. If that's true of you, the God of peace shall be with you. And then he listened to Timothy chapter 4. Now chapter 4 brings us possibly to the days in which we live. I charge thee, therefore before God, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. He is the, he's seen, out of scene. That is to say you'll be an awful nuisance. It doesn't say in season and out of season. It rather suggests that it's always in season from God's point of view and it's always out of season from the man who's listening to you. At some more convenient season will I hear you. you remember the words that were said? We never did. Preach the word Be instant, In season, in out of season. Recruit. Are you a good one at that? Some of us are very smart at that. Rebuke. Oh yes, listen to us. It's all, ah, oh, but wait a minute, with all long suffering, as well as doctrine. That's where we sit up with it? Now, doctrine may be quite sound, but over the way we give, the way we rub everybody up the wrong way, the way in which we grate, the way in which we forget that we are, armed, it's possible that we should be tempted, like the one we're in, you it spoils it all. Long suffering. Now you've been very long suffering listening to these things. But I hope that it have never been wasting time. It's no good us saying, oh we want to get pressing on with regard to this great question of what is the mystery, where do the dispensation begin, what are heavenly tapes, oh that's all good, all wonderful. But this is needful too. As you know, a little reinterpretation of, of Colossians chapter 1 would put the word acknowledge where we have the word knowledge, and it would suggest that our walk, that's worthy, is largely uh, a result of acknowledging truth that's leading to us. Not merely knowledge, but acknowledging. But that will have to come in its place. So then we'll bring this little study to an end, i pray that it may be a beginning, so far as group or less is concerned.